Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome to Evening Dhamma. Today we are looking at... Today is Sutta Day, so we are looking at one of the suttas. Today we're looking, we're skipping ahead to Majjhima Nikaya 54, the Pottaliya Sutta. I'm just again picking talks that the Buddha gave that I think are pertinent. And not just that, because they're all reasonably pertinent, but sort of unique and immediately applicable to our group. Hopefully both local and on the internet. But this one is, I think, fairly unique. Um, it has, of course, it touches on some familiar themes, but puts it sets them out in a fairly unique way that I think makes it important. So the story is, the story goes that there is this uh, man, Potaliya, and the Buddha is dwelling in a place I'm not really familiar with called Anguttarapan. Anguttarapana and there's a town named Aparna where he's staying and in the morning he went for alms and came back after receiving whatever food people had thought to offer to religious people that day as was the custom in India And he went to a little grove, uh, some some wooded wooded place, and sat down at the root of a tree. And sat abiding peacefully. And then came this man Potalia, which the, who the text calls a householder. Potalia, the householder, which is important because, or which is pertinent because he doesn't think of himself as a householder but the text goes ahead and right away calls him a householder and says he was walking and wandering for exercise and he was in full dress, whatever that means let's see what the Pali is Sampana Visana Pavurano he was well dressed and uh, the point is he he had householder dress on and he was carrying a a parasol which is another no no for monks and was wearing sandals which actually was a no no it was a, a against the rules although living in the forest it eventually became a thing where the, even the buddha allowed monks to wear sandals when living in the forest. And he came to where the Buddha was was uh, sitting, and the Buddha said, there are seats, householder, sit down if you like. You can sit down if you like. And he calls him a householder. And why this is important, because Paul Talia doesn't think he's a householder, and he gets upset angry and displeased 
He said, he's calling me a householder, and he stood there. And the second time the Buddha said, there are seats, if householder, sit down if you like. Again, he gets very angry. And the third time, the Buddha says, sit down if you like, householder. <coughs> he gets very angry, and he finally blows up and says, Master Gotama, it's neither fitting nor proper that you address me as householder. And the Buddha says, but you look like one. Well, he doesn't say that. He says, he says it more poetically or more... Uh, more... Uh, what's the word? Elegantly than that. He says, you have the aspects, marks, and signs of a householder. Basically, you look like one. You've got all the characteristics of a householder. How am I supposed to address you, basically? And he says, well, that may be true, but I have given up all my works and cut off all my affairs. I've settled everything. This is what people talk about in India. In, in, the, in that time, anyway, they talked about setting everything aside and going off and living the life of a recluse—it's not just in India. You see, you hear about this sort of uh, idea or ideal. Later on in life, you commit yourself to philosophy or religion or simple living, having given up your work. We call it retirement, right? He says, "In what way have you given up your works and cut off all your affairs?" The Buddha is going to. Try and explain to him why that doesn't make him a, a recluse, a, someone who has left the home life. And he says, what he says is, in, uh, is reasonable. He says, I've given up all my wealth, given it all to my children as their inheritance. I've given up everything I have. Well, my wealth anyway. I do not advise or blame them about such matters, but merely live on food and clothing. So his kids look after him. And he's he's supported in whatever he needs, but he doesn't get involved in wealth and politics and society. This is how I've given up all my works and cut off all my affairs. And the Buddha said, well, that's one thing. But in the Aryavinaya, the discipline of the noble ones, and he uses a fairly lofty term here, which he often uses to describe his his community you know, as being those, or not just his community, but the ideal. You know, when he when the Buddha talks about his community uh, and his religion, he's really not thinking about people. I don't think. Well, he's he appears to be much more talking about trying to place it in terms of the ideal, not being exclusionary. Well, you have to be Buddhist if you want to be a real religious person. But here he says, Aryuvine, he means it's not really noble. The noble ones, those who you could really call noble, their discipline is different. And so this piques his interest. And he 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 changes his his tone and starts calling him Venerable Sir, Bhante, I think.
He says, uh, so then what is the cutting off of affairs in the noble one's discipline? You know, this is interesting. Is there, what, what more is there to do? What more can I do? Because this is really probably something that was of interest to him. He he'd thought to himself, i got to cut off my affairs. And so he did what he could, but here was someone telling him that there's more to do. More that you can do to live a, a free and simple and peaceful life. And the Buddha said, well, there are eight things in the noble one's discipline that lead to the cutting off of affairs. Or you can really say you've cut off. And it's, it's again, the, it should be familiar, the Buddha putting a different spin on things. So where it's not just, not just external stuff. In fact, it's the kind of thing where you don't even have to necessarily leave the home, the, the household life. You, know, you can live at home and all these things, but there are many things that you haven't done yet, that you haven't committed to anyway. And so they, sh they should be fairly familiar. The first one is non-killing. Abstains from killing living beings. Abandons it. One takes only what is given. One does not take what is not given. One doesn't steal. One abandons thievery. Um, with the support of truthful speech, one abandons false speech. With the support of unmalicious speech, malicious speech is abandoned. One doesn't speak trying to make someone upset, trying to harm someone with their speech. With the support of no rapacity, rapacity, rapacious, rapacity, rapacious nature and greed. With the support of not being greedy. Greed is abandoned. With the support of not being spiteful and scolding, spite and scolding are to be abandoned. With the support of no anger and irritation, anger and irritation are to be abandoned. With the support of non-arrogance, arrogance is to be abandoned. These are the eight things stated in brief without being expounded in detail that lead to the cutting off of affairs and the noble one's discipline. So I think um, what he's mainly getting at is a ethics or discipline, the, the, the foundation of spiritual life or holy life. But he's tailoring it a little bit to this guy, it's, it seems, because Bodhalia has gotten angry and he's been kind of arrogant and full of himself and stiff-backed. You know, he's been quite uh, un rigid in his mindset. And so the Buddha seems to address that directly by mentioning anger and irritation and by giving those and, and subtly pointing out in sort of a roundabout way, right? He starts with not killing and, and then he hits him with softly with it so that he feels ashamed and realizes because he couldn't just say, look, you're getting angry. That's bad. You're a bad person. You're not really a reckless because you're getting angry because that would, of course, lead to 
further anger, more anger most likely. But in, in a soft way, roundabout way, he's come at what was the problem and helped this man to realize. Not only is he not a recluse, but he's also not really a, a spiritual person because he still gets angry. He's lacking in that. And so, even more interested and, and quite impressed by the Buddha's enumeration of these eight things, he, he says, uh, it would be good if you could explain these things to me. You've stated them in brief, but could you elaborate? And so the Buddha talks about them. I mean, he gives a fairly standard description. Basically, uh, you know, if you do, if you if you kill, this is a fetter. This is something that binds you to in, to many things. Binds you to the the guilt of having killed. It binds you to the uh, obsession with 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 cruelty and with evil. With you know, with a mind state that is discordant with with happiness or disconnected from happiness and peace because it aims for stress and suffering so it's a stressful mind state and it's a it's a part of your personality that's going to be a cause for dis uh, disturbance so by abandoning it all those taints vexation and fever are, are gone they don't arise you don't get born in hell because of it, and so on. The same with taking what is given. When you take what is given, when you abandon taking what is not given, when you abandon trying to take things from others or even manipulating people to give you things, and you only take what is freely given of their own accord, it's it's really the the epitome or the the pinnacle of of economy where you know he's he's basically distilling down economy to the purest form where there's no buying and selling there's no coercing there's no chasing after there's no chasing whatsoever even for, for well for for requisites things you need you you cease from seeking them out, and you only well, insofar as asking for them or or uh, trying to ingratiate yourself with others, even working for them. You know, in the in the sense, so the sense is not seeking them out at all, looking to see if they're easy to find. Oh, here's some. Uh, rags or rubbish I can take and I'll take that rubbish and live off of that and that's sufficient and so there's a lot of vexation that's done away with when you give up economy when, certainly when you give up money but, but more so when you give up needing and wanting things I mean of course most extreme when you give up taking things that aren't given, stealing. So much trouble has gotten rid of. Uh, you give up lying with the giving up of lying so much distress and confusion and 
warped relationship with reality is given up. When you stop being malicious, when you stop being... Right, and so here he's quite tailoring it to this man. When you, well, when you give up greed, like giving up greed, pointing out that just because you've given up your wealth doesn't mean you've given up greed. It's not so much about um, your situation in life, because of course even a monk living off in the forest can be full of greed, full of desire, full of spite and anger and irritation and all these things. So giving them up, I mean, it's very much what we're all about here. <clears throat> trying to free ourselves from craving, free ourselves from anger and irritation. That's what the meditation is for. In case it wasn't clear, that's what we're here for. Not just to live peacefully and live in a retirement, but to work, to train ourselves, to free ourselves from evil, unwholesome states. And uh, the Buddha says, so these eight things are are putting your affairs in order, cutting off the affairs, but I know these things, eight things lead to the cutting off of affairs. So this is the base. But at this point, he says, when one has uh, sort of set one's behavior in order, Cutting off of affairs hasn't been achieved in all ways. You're not there yet, of course. This is just the base. And they say, oh, well then, how do you do that? And then the Buddha, of course, switches. I mean, at this point, he's, he's caught him and he's going to give him a, a deeper teaching. That's not relating to his behavior, but relating to something that's going to be important and I think is important to all of us. <clears throat> he gives a bunch of similes, uh, similes of how we should understand uh, sensual pleasure. Right? Yes, they're all about sensual pleasure. So this is of interest because sensual pleasure is, of course, the, the, the sticking point. It's what keeps us from being religious. It's what keeps us from... Uh, from going the distance we're held back by our obsession and our, our our distraction by things we want things we like lust and desire and addiction so he asks him question he says suppose there were a dog and the dog is very hungry and weak and it's waiting by a butcher's shop it smells the meat sees the meat and then a butcher comes comes out with a bone and the bone has blood smeared on it but there's no meat on it but it's smeared with blood and throws it out the window sees the dog there and throws it out What's the dog going to do? It's going to leap, leap at the bone. No, at the bone, chew on it. But he asks, so do you think that, um, do you think that dog will be satiated? Is his hunger going to go away? Is the weakness going to go away? He doesn't know, it's 
it's really not it's just going to get wearied and disappointed after a while and still be very hungry and the Buddha said in the same way uh, someone who is a noble disciple thinks about this and remembers that the Buddha compared the blood smeared bone sensu compared sensuality to the blood smeared bone something that might make you excited and happy but will never feel it fulfill you that's what it's like it's like gnawing on this bloody bone trying to get full and then he says suppose a, a vulture a heron or a hawk one of these vicious birds birds are are so such um honed killers some birds they're very vicious killers and so one of these birds <coughs> gets a piece of meat grabs it and flies away and is so excited but then the other vultures herons and hawks pursue the bird with the piece of meat and peck it and claw it trying to get at the piece of meat trying to make it drop the meat what do you think if that vulture heron or hawk does not quickly let go of that piece of meat wouldn't it incur you know isn't it going to be in big trouble wouldn't it be, wouldn't it die or or suffer quite egregiously i say yes for sure and he said the buddha says well in the same way a meditator really a, a noble disciple remembers that the buddha uh, compared sensuality with a piece of meat held by the hawk, held by the bird. Because like that, it's something that leads to great stress and suffering. You think you've got something wonderful, but there's so much stress that comes uh, along with it. The stress of having to protect it, the stress of keeping it, the stress of wanting it, you know, fear, being afraid of losing it, and so on. the stress of having it threatened, the stress of jealousy and, and stinginess, miserliness, the stress of wanting it, liking it. And so thinking about it like this, thinking about uh, sensuality like this, one, one gives it up. And begins to see the danger, begins to see the danger in them. And the Buddha says he avoids the equanimity that is diversified, based on diversity, and develops the equanimity that is unified, based on unity. So, what he means here is, I think, is that uh, there's a sort of an equanimity that comes from from getting what you want but because it's based in the diversity of experience meaning experience is so much more than just you getting what you want there are times of getting of not getting what you want of losing what you like and because it's diverse like that your equanimity means your contentment your your contentment when you have what you want is going to be threatened you be temporarily satisfied 
but it's based in diversity. It means it's based in the diverse nature of experience. Now, the other kind of equanimity is not dependent on the changing experiences. It's not dependent on this experience or that experience, so it's based on unity. It's fixed. It's It has a singular range of outcomes. It means it's always equanimous. Once you're able to see reality as simply experiences arising and ceasing, then your equanimity is unified. That's, I think, what is the description here. It's quite a quite a unique uh, term. It's not something you hear the Buddha say often. And he gives more similes. He's not done yet. Each one he says this, again, repeating this refrain. Uh, so the next one is a, a, a grass torch. Suppose one takes a blazing grass torch and walks into the wind. So if one doesn't let go of that grass torch quickly, wouldn't it burn their hand or their arm? So it's like a fuse, really. This this torch is like a fuse walking into the wind. If you don't let go of it, it's going to burn your hand. If you don't let, if we don't let go of our the things we desire, we're setting ourselves up for stress and suffering when things change, when we're not able to get what we want. Uh, and then he says, suppose there were a charcoal pit, deeper than a man's full height, glowing with coals, without flame or smoke. It was so hot it wasn't even flaming, I think is the point. White hot. And then a man came who wanted to live and not to die, who wanted pleasure and recoiled from pain. And two strong men grabbed him and dragged him towards the charcoal pit. What, what do you think? Wouldn't he twist his body trying to get away from these two strong men? And Buddha says sensuality, he likens sensuality to the charcoal pit. It's quite dismal, a dismal view of it. But it's about the effects of addiction. Right? Trying to, struggling to get away from your disappointment, your withdrawal, being tormented. By the f being tormented really by the fear of consequence, the fear of losing. You're constantly tormented by anything that gets anything that threatens your equanimity, which threatens your contentment. Yes, I have all the things that I want, but there's always a a potential for losing them, right? When your happiness depends on things, losing them is always something that's going to be worrisome. So the same way this charcoal pit is worrisome to, for this man, to say the least. Suppose someone dreamt about lovely parks, lovely groves, lovely meadows, and lovely lakes. But then they woke up and it was all gone. It wasn't real. And he says, sensual pleasures have been likened to a dream by the Blessed One, by the Buddha. And seeing this, and this is really it. I mean, it is a dream. You think, wow, I'm so happy when I get what I want. And then something happens and you lose it and you realize that was not true happiness. I wasn't really a happy person. I was just happy while I got what I wanted. And when I woke up from it, I realized I'm no better off than before. I'm worse off than before.
because now I'm wishing, craving for those things I can't have, like a dream. Or suppose a man borrowed goods, a person borrowed some goods, a fancy carriage, fine jeweled earrings, and proceeded to parade around. It's like you you uh, you lease a car, and you've got this nice car, and borrow some. Well, borrowed is even better. You borrow somebody else's car, borrow someone's nice fancy suit, and you go to the market. You go to the mall, and when people see them, wow, they say, wow, this is a rich man. This is how the rich enjoy their wealth. But then the owners, when they saw this, they would take back their things. And when they take back their things, you realize, well, it wasn't real. Point is, the state wasn't real. It was a, an illusion. And he says, sensuality is like that. Sensuality is like borrowed goods. You've borrowed them. So you get to taste some kind of contentment. It's like a taste of enlightenment in a sense. You say, wow, I'm so free from want, free from need. And then, boom, it comes crashing down because it's based not on, not on it wisdom, but it's based on satisfaction on getting what you want which is of course not tenable as long as you have wants you'll always be subject to not getting what you want okay and here's a more complicated one you have two men one once there is a, a a fruit tree, and somebody goes to the fruit tree looking for fruit, and sees says, "Oh, here's this. This tree has so much fruit in it, but none of the fruit has fallen to the ground." So they climb the tree, and climbs up in the tree, eats some of the fruit, puts some in his bag, and he's so happy up in the tree, thinking he's. He's got himself in a situation that is just wonderful, sitting up in this tree eating the fruit. Then a second man comes, and he also wants fruit, and he looks up in the tree, he doesn't see the man, but he sees the fruit, and he says, mm, none of the fruit has fallen, what will I do? And he, so he takes out an axe, and he starts to cut down the tree. I don't know that this sort of thing would happen in real life, but it's, it's a, there's an important point here. What do you think... If the second man doesn't come down out of his tree, when the tree falls, he was going to break his hand or his foot or some other part of his body. It's kind of a silly situation that probably wouldn't happen in real life, but, oh, it may, I suppose, but uh, the point is not that. The point is that this is, this is imagery. It's how we should think about sensuality. Here we are up in our trees, but we're up in a tree. We're not standing on firm ground. We're, we're in a precarious situation such that if if it all crashes if we can't get what we want then or not yeah if if some situation comes then we're not going to be able to get what we want and our happiness our happy state of being up in the tree is going to be threatened and and lead to great fear and and lost 
going to come crashing down like the tree. So the Buddha said, when one realizes this, this is a... Uh, I mean, these similes are very powerful imagery. Um, but it's not so much... I mean, a part of it is hearing that the Buddha had, has said this and reflecting on it. But a bigger part is realizing that, yes, indeed, realizing for yourself with wisdom that, yes, indeed, that's how it is. And so then he talks about what happens when one realizes this. Because sensuality, of course, is a very, again, a very big part of the problem. And in general, craving, wanting for things, is really the whole problem. So when one changes and becomes more mindful and gains equanimity about these things, then many things can come. One, he talks about magical powers one can gain with a, with a f unified mind. And eventually, with this mindfulness whose purity is due to equanimity, one realizes for oneself with direct knowledge, enters and abides in the deliverance of mind and deliverance of wisdom. There's a true freedom of mind and wisdom that are taintless with the destruction of the taints. So by giving up, By giving up one's uh, one's really one one's attachment or one's associated mind states, mind states that create association, meaning associations of wanting and liking and aversion and uh, ha hatred and so on. And by giving those up through seeing things clearly, seeing that there's no reason to give rise to that. There's no benefit to it, and there's great harm and great danger. Then one can be said to have settled one's affairs, he says. And then he says, what do you think, householder? <laughs> do you see in yourself any cutting off of affairs like this, cutting off of affairs? When it is achieved entirely and always, this cutting off of affairs... Settling affairs, I think we'd probably more say in English. Settling affairs in the noble one's discipline. And he says, Bhante, who am I that I should possess any cutting off of affairs? For I am very far from that anyway. So, and then he, he expresses how impressed he is, which is a common thing after listening to the Buddha talk. And then he takes refuge in the Buddha and in his dispensation. So, again, an interesting sutta, something that I think is beneficial for us, especially those similes. There, The Buddha talks about them elsewhere, but here is one place where they're all gathered together and, and uh, illustrated quite nicely. How, how many ways we can understand sensuality so that's the dhamma for tonight thank you all for tuning in have a good night